Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that, Rita. I asked Rita to lead off with that poem specifically, which she had shared with me some time ago, um, in order to put us in mind of sacred space, of holy architecture, and of what it means to design for the divine, whether it's the flying buttresses of Notre Dame or the marbled basilicas of Italy or the lofty star-ceilinged great synagogue of Rome or even the humble wooden embrace of Ner Shalom. I got to see some sacred spaces on my vacation over the last two weeks. Churches, synagogues, Greek temples. I love visiting such places. I am drawn to them. I am a sucker for a sanctuary. It is hard for me to pass by a church in Rome without going in. Many of them are too much for me. Too much decoration, too much paint in too many colors, too busy. But some are surprisingly soothing even in their busyness. For instance, last Sunday morning, I sat through mass at the Basilica di San Lorenzo di Lucina, full of warm colored marble, mauves, grays, and browns with Renaissance paintings strategically placed. In the U.S., an ornate art-filled space like San Lorenzo would be a big tourist attraction. In Rome, it was just a parish church, a place of routine communion and well-worn worship. It was busy, visually that is, but it also felt earthy and gentle as I sat there trying to make out the priest's Italian language drash, tensing up when I would hear the word synagoga but ultimately relaxing once I absorbed that the overall theme of the homily was God's love for everyone across race and religion and ethnicity, ending with an imperative that we hold love for each other in the same way. On another day of the trip, Oren and I visited Pistum, an ancient Greek city an hour south of Naples. The houses there are now just ruins laid out in the original city grid, but the great temples dedicated to the gods stand. A massive temple to Athena at one end of the complex worthy of the Acropolis, and two side-by-side temples at the other, one thought to be dedicated to Poseidon and the other to Hera. At 2,500 years old, they are still magnificent. They are built to a larger scale than the churches and synagogues we know. They are massive, and the steps leading up to the threshold are nearly three feet high each. This is not human scale, but a staircase for the gods, who are not bound by our puny physicality. Oren and I spent last Erev Shabbat at the Tempio Maggiore, the great synagogue of Rome, taller than it is wide, as if it were a spaceship ready to launch. Its footprint is square, but it gives way to a roundish cupola at the top. It's built tall, perhaps to make sure it is seen by the eyes of the Vatican just across the river. The inside of the great synagogue is one tall open space, creating an echo that makes it almost impossible to understand the words being chanted by the chazan. Still, 
There is magic in being there, seeing the rabbi and the cantor in their formal robes with tall black hats, also architectural, echoing the very shape of the building's dome. I sat in the resonating chamber of the great synagogue, just as I had stood at the temple of Poseidon and wondered about this human impulse to build a house for the gods. Why? Why this need for containment? We could go outside and worship on a mountain or before an altar of ocean or in the Italian countryside among colonnades of umbrella pines. But no, instead we build structures of great weight at great expense, even though their bulging Doric columns are designed to call to mind the trees just outside the door. What is it that inspires humanity to create space for worship when arguably the whole world is already just that? That question is hovering in this week's Torah portion, Terumah, in it, we are introduced to the great building project of the Mikdash, the holy place, which later we come to call the Mishkan, the God-dwelling place, or maybe the Shekhinah place, the word Shekhinah coming from the same Hebrew root as Mishkan. God says in this portion, V'asuli Mikdash v'shachanti betocham, let them make for me a Mikdash, a holy place, and I will dwell among them. And then the blueprint begins to roll off the divine tongue. Acacia wood and crimson thread, gold, silver, fancy skins. This is not a tax or tithe, not an obligation or a commandment, but instead, a contribution from anyone whose heart moves them. This might be volunteer labor, but it is not slave labor. The community of former slaves is being invited, not required, to create something together, something bigger than any of them. It is perhaps their first chance to make something beautiful. But back to our question, why? Who needs it? The children of Israel just a couple weeks ago received the Ten Commandments directly from God at the mountain, in the wilderness. No doors or arches, no naves or apses, no steeple, just people. So why now this request for an enclosed or at least partitioned space? Was the wilderness too vast, too limitless and frightening? Is that why God requests a sanctuary with measurable and finite dimensions, 200 cubits long, 80 cubits wide? In the Midrash, the question of why is explicitly asked. Why the need for containment? In the Midrash, Moshe is troubled by this problem. How could they even hope to build something to contain the deity? After all, as it says in the first book of Kings, the heavens cannot measure thee. As it says in Jeremiah, do I not fill heaven and earth? As it says in Isaiah, the heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. Moshe considers these verses and sees no possibility of containing the vast divine. But God replies to Moshe saying, 
איני מבקש לפי כוחי, אלא לפי כוחן. I do not ask for you to make a mikdash according to my power, but according to the people's. If I were to ask the entire earth, it could not contain my glory. But all I ask of you is 200 cubits by 80. And this is the answer, that it is all a matter of scale. We don't attempt to manufacture a sanctuary at a global scale because we don't live at a global scale. I can sit in a wilderness or on a mountaintop or in a forest and feel the flow of divine all around me, but eventually I need enclosure. I need the more intimate embrace of space scaled to my size. I cannot understand all the biology and physics that make creation a complex and glorious sanctuary. But I can get my brain around architecture, proportions, materials, adornment, arrangement. I feel the personal capacity to contribute something at this scale, even if it is just to say, move the Caravaggio a little to the left. I can understand a cathedral because it is like a house and I can understand a house even if the cathedral is like the greatest and most lavish house ever. I can understand a mishkan because it is like my tent but my tent pushed, stretched to something bigger and more opulent than my tent could be. The mishkan lives in human scale. It lives within the limitations and ambitions of human industry. And in a way, isn't that just what Shekhinah is? God at human scale. So we might also ask, in these pandemic times in which we make our sanctuary here on Zoom, what are you moved to offer to enhance this Mishkan? Fabrics and acacia wood won't do it in this medium. But is there something else, something spiritual or energetic that you might offer out of the generosity of your heart? Consider that for a moment. And if we're really serious about the idea of God being able to dwell at human scale, we might also consider our human lives themselves as a mishkan. So take a moment to close your eyes and see your life, your whole life, as a temple or a cathedral or a holy tent, a dwelling place for the divine. What are its fixtures and its decorations? What relationships and practices and loves and losses and words form its architecture and adornments. An invitation to look around, to look around in it, this mishkan of your life. Look around in it with wonder and gratitude for what you have designed and built. And ask yourself, what might I offer it next? from my generous heart.